0: see to turn to someone, give them a fist bump and say, I feel sorry for my pastor. I'll tell you why in a minute. Just say, I feel sorry for our pastor. Some of you are wondering, Christian, why do we feel sorry for you? I am officiating an outdoor wedding today at 4.30 p.m. On the roof of a building in downtown Lee Summit because I think we want to get as close to the sun as possible. So pray for me. Because the weather guy said last night the heat index would be between 115 and 120. So um, here's what you need to know. If I survive it, we're going to have church next week. And like I've been telling you, um, next week we go to three service times. See that transition? That was, that was pretty smooth, right? So next week we go to three, three service times. Next week our services are 8, nine thirty, and 11. It will remain that way for the fall. So don't show up at eight You'll be either really late or really early uh, for a service next week. We also next week will be kicking off our fall week of prayer. Uh, Our two favorite weeks of the year at Journey are weeks of prayer. We'll pray every morning from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. right here in this auditorium, or you might catch us online if you have to travel and can't be here. Uh, But I really hope you will take time to start the fall season of your life by just giving an hour, five days of your week, uh, Monday through Friday, an hour on Saturday. That'll be 9 to 10 a.m. to prayer. Uh, I think it could make all the difference in the world in how you feel about what you're facing And in how God is working and what you're facing, if you'll come pray with us or if you'll join us online. Um, If you have your Bibles today, we're in Matthew chapter 27. If you want to go ahead and turn there, we're in the fifth week of a series called It Is Finished. We are marching through the last five days of Jesus' life as he marches to the cross, into the grave, And out of the tomb and resurrection, we're also marching towards the end of the book of Matthew um, as we kind of move through three years of teaching in the gospel of Matthew. And just to kind of place you into Passion Week, here's what you need to understand. The last three messages have been on Thursday night. So we started Thursday evening at about sundown with the Passover dinner, Jesus and his disciples. We ended last week Friday morning as the sun was coming up. And today and for the next couple weeks, we'll literally be living on Good Friday morning. Today, we'll be moving, beginning to move through the 12 hours between sunrise on Friday and sunset on Friday. And it's interesting because Matthew tells us as much about this time as anybody tells us about this time. This 12 hours of daylight on what we call Good Friday, from the time the sun came up, The day Jesus was crucified till the time Jesus was buried, about a 12-hour period, Matthew gives us 61 verses, Mark only 47, John only 55, Luke gives us one more at 62. Matthew has as much to say about this 12-hour block of time that we call Good Friday as any one of the authors in Scripture. Today we're just going to focus on the first three hours of that day. So we're going to hang out not as much with Jesus as we are with the people who surround the story of Jesus. We're going to be in three hours of time from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. We're going to be looking at three scenes of Good Friday morning that are all represented by three people. And I think these three people in these three scenes have the opportunity to teach us three big faith lessons. So as we jump in today, the first scene that we're going to see, scene one, I'm just going to call Judas's death. Matthew's going to give us a very unique perspective, different than Mark, Luke, and John, about what happened to Judas, we spent an entire message on him a few weeks ago. Today in verses 1 through 10, the first scene, the first thing Matthew wants us to know about Good Friday is Judas' death. Look at verses 1 through 10. It says, early in the morning, so the sun has just come up. All the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, they led him away, and they handed him over to Pilate the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, saw that Jesus was condemned, He was seized with remorse, and he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders. I've sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple, and he left. Then he went away, and he hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said it's against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That's why it's been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Here's what you need to understand about Judas's death. Judas went to the wrong place with the wrong motives to find forgiveness. He found himself in a moment of time where he felt bad about doing bad. And he wanted forgiveness. He wanted absolution. He wanted Someone to tell him that he was forgiven he wanted someone to tell him that he'd be okay He wanted someone to reconnect him to a god that he had turned against So we find that he went to the wrong place with the wrong motives because he was looking for forgiveness He went to the temple which up until that time had been the physical representation of God's presence on planet earth. He thought the temple is a place where I will find forgiveness. And at the temple, he went to the priest because the priests were the mediators between the people and God. You literally would bring your offering to the priest and you would say, please ask God to forgive me and that's how you would be forgiven. And he went to the elders because the elders were the people who represented God's direction, God's rule, God's reign to the people of Israel. But he went with the motive that he would figure out how to fix what he had done wrong. He went to the wrong place with the wrong motives and thought, I feel bad about doing bad. I have to fix this. And what's really interesting is Judas gives us a perfect picture of religion and how it is so different from Christianity. See, religion is humanity's attempt to work their way to God. I feel bad about doing bad, so I have to do something... To make it right Judas's motive was I have to do something now to right this wrong. I have to fix what I have broken This is religion more than a dozen major world religions that all work this way Humanity figures out how to work their way to God Christianity is the one that's different Because Christianity is not humanity's attempt. It's humanity's acceptance of Jesus as king because of what he has done to connect us to God Christianity is the only religion that said, I have broken this, and I cannot fix this. But Jesus did, and he offers me what he has done. It's where religion and Christianity become two totally different things. So Judas thought, I've broken this, I've got to fix it. So I'll go to the temple, because the temple represents God. And I'll go to the priest, because the priest represents me before God. And I'll go to the elders, because the elders are the one who gives God's direction, and I will figure out how to fix this. What he had missed over three years of teaching, more than a thousand consecutive days with Jesus, was Jesus saying stuff like, I am the new temple. The temple only represented God, I am God. Jesus would say, I am the priest who will connect you to God. The priest were only a picture of what the Messiah would ultimately do. Jesus would say, I am the ruling elder. I am the one who speaks on behalf of God as his lawgiver and his judge. And his king, and Jesus would say, I am the only one who can fix what you did wrong. Come to me. Knowing these lessons of Jesus over the prior three years, Judas had the opportunity to run to Jesus in total surrender, or to run to the temple, priest, elders, in total self-righteousness and say, I have to fix for this. Uh, I have to fix this. I've taken some money to do something wrong. Now I need to give some money back to do something right. And we see the chief priests say, oh, we, like, we can't take that. They said in verse 6, it would be against the law for us to take the money that you've given and like put it in the offering. These priests who were in the midst of killing God's son now cared about respecting God. Oh, we can't do that. It would, it would be wrong for us spiritually to do something that's against the law. Never mind that we're going to get ready to kill God's son. It would be wrong for us. They, they wanted to have a moral superiority, and look what they did. They said, we can't take it into the temple, but we can give it to a good cause. Another thing that makes me feel really, really good. Not only can I have moral superiority over most, I try to follow the Bible. I can serve the poor more than most, and that also makes me feel really, really good. So they're like, we can't take this money, it's blood money, so here's what we do. We'll donate it to a really good cause so everyone says those are really good people. We find in the church, and we find in the history of Christianity, that it is so possible sometimes to get wrapped up in how serving the poor makes us feel, that that makes us feel more righteous than spending time with Jesus. Which is why Jesus, a couple weeks ago, when his feet were anointed with oil, and Judas was like, why would we not give that money to the poor? Jesus was like, wait a minute, you're always going to have the poor with you. Serving the poor is not as important as sitting with me. Now... Serving the poor feels better. Like for those of you who maybe got to participate last night in our back-to-school rally at Lee Summit North in a 147-degree inferno, giving kids backpacks who all weren't melting to the pavement. It feels better to spend two or three hours serving people sometimes than it does spend in 20 or 30 minutes reading the last few chapters of Jeremiah. Feels better to serve. But Jesus said Mary's doing what's important. The most important thing is sitting with Jesus. Because if you sit with Jesus, the result will be that you always serve people. But if you let your religion become serving people instead of sitting with Jesus, you can very quickly kind of evolve into this heart of Judas. So we see the moral superiority. These chief priests had just sentenced the Messiah to death. But they were like, we want to honor, the, we, we want to follow the Bible, and, you know, we want to help the poor. And it's like, you've created this thing that you feel like makes you spiritual. But you've just decided to kill Jesus. When we look at the big picture of Judas' death, I think we can really learn two things about our own faith picture. Letter A, I think we can remember that it was our sin that caused the death of Jesus as much as Judas's. Like sometimes we look at him and we think, how dare him. But it's our sin, as much as Judas's, that killed Jesus. Isaiah 53, 5 says this. He was pierced because Judas turned him in. Is that what it says? No. He was pierced for our transgressions. He's crucified because we're sinners. He was crushed because Judas sold him. Is that what it says? No, he's crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. He wasn't just crucified. Listen, Jesus wasn't just crucified because Judas messed up. He was crucified because we messed up. He's crucified because I messed up. He's crucified because you messed up. Isaiah 53 5 says, He was crucified because I am a sinner who needs forgiveness, not because Judas sold him for 30 pieces of silver. So when we look at the end of Judas' life, we remember spiritually, I certainly am no better than Judas. And we remember letter B, if it wasn't for Jesus, we would all die as spiritual foreigners. Verse 7 says they bought a field that they decided to bury foreigners in. They bought a field to bury people who were not connected to God through their earthly lineage, who weren't Jews. What we need to understand is none of us were born connected to God. And if it wasn't for Jesus, we would not only all die, but we would die as spiritual foreigners. We would die disconnected from God, and there would be a place where God's people go after they die, and then there would be a place where we go after we die. But because of Jesus, we're not spiritual foreigners. And because of Jesus, after this earthly death, we do not face a spiritual eternal death, but we face a spiritual and eternal life. The second scene that we move to on Good Friday is Pilate's contemplation. So Matthew's going to tell us about Judas' death. We're going to learn some lessons, but then we're going to learn about Jesus before Pilate. Look at verses 11 through 25, a little bit of reading, so maybe take a deep breath and get yourself focused. It says, meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You've said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priest and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge. To the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival. This was the festival of the unleavened bread which began with Passover. It was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they'd handed over Jesus to him. While Pilate was sitting on his judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who, who's called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate, but they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility, and all the people answered, his blood is on us, and it is on our children. So let me introduce you to Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. If you don't know him, you should know him. He was the fifth, according to Roman history, the fifth governor of Rome to Judea, or Palestine. It was a Roman territory that Rome ruled, and they sent people to be rulers over this territory. He held office, we know, again, not from the Bible, but from history, from AD 26 to AD 36. Luke puts Jesus' entire ministry inside this 10-year window. The book of Luke, when it opens, tells us Jesus started his ministry, ended his ministry, in this window while uh, Pilate was the governor of Judea. He's mentioned in all four gospels. He's mentioned three times in the book of Acts. He's mentioned once in First Timothy. And he is the only Gentile mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. As a matter of fact, in Acts you hardly ever hear Jesus, the gospel of Jesus preached. Without being told that he was crucified by a real person named Pontius Pilate. I need you to understand how important this guy is. When we add up all of the New Testament texts that Pontius Pilate is mentioned in, it's longer than 15 books of the Bible. There's more said about Pilate than 15 different books in the entire Bible 78 verses on Pilate. There's only 48 in the book of Jonah, and he's a pretty big deal in our story. There's only 85 in the book of Ruth. And she's a pretty big deal in our faith journey. The Bible only tells us 96 verses about Samson, and we all kind of know everything about him and and teach his story. Yet here's Pilate with nearly 80 verses devoted to him, and a lot of Christians don't understand who he is, yet the apostles of the first hundred years, every time they would recite the gospel of Jesus, would say he was killed by Pilate. He was a real guy. What's interesting about these 80 verses is we can learn a lot about his heart. And I think in his heart, we see a little bit inside of each of our hearts. Because when we look at Pilate's spiritual engagement, we see three things. We see first that it's passive. We see letter B that it's inquisitive. And then we see that it's overwhelmed by peer pressure. When we look at Pilate's spiritual engagement, we see his spiritual engagement is highly passive, it's very inquisitive, and it is often overwhelmed by peer pressure. And I think a lot of us could say the same thing about our faith shape. When I say uh, Pilate's faith shape was passive, here's what I mean by this. Four different times we're told he tried to avoid killing Jesus because he really didn't want to. We're told the first thing he did is he had a private inquiry or a private investigation. The Jews brought Jesus to him, but they weren't allowed inside his home because it was Passover and they didn't want to be unclean. So the first thing he did is he took Jesus inside knowing they wouldn't follow him and said, all right, like man to man, let's just figure this thing out. But Jesus didn't cry for his life. Jesus didn't ask for his life. Jesus didn't really deny any other charges. He then took him back out to the crowd and he said, like, he basically said, I've investigated him. He's not done anything wrong. And they're like, yeah, but you still got to kill him. And he's like, really, that's Herod's decision. So we learn in another gospel that he didn't send him to Herod and thought maybe Herod can figure this out. It says that Herod had always wanted to meet Jesus because he hoped to see him do some kind of miracle. Talk to Jesus a little bit. When Jesus wouldn't do a miracle, he sent him back to Pilate. Said, he's your problem now. Pilate still didn't see any reason to kill him. So he had him flogged. He had him beaten. They dressed him up as a king. He thought humiliation would be enough. And he brought him out to the people and said, like, here, like, I punish this guy. But there's no need to kill him. And when the people yelled crucify him, finally he washed his hand and said, okay, but it's on you, it's not on me. Like he knew in his heart what was right and what was wrong and he was hoping that somebody else would help him do what was right. Some of you have something you're facing in your life, your job, your family right now and you already know what God has told you to do and you're trying to figure out who else can do that for you so you don't have to take that step. Pilate knew Jesus shouldn't have been killed. He did not want to kill him. He was trying to figure out, how do I get out of this thing? How can somebody help me do the right thing because I don't have the strength to do it on my own? And, And he wasn't able to get there. He didn't want to kill him, but he wasn't strong enough to worship him as king. He was also highly inquisitive. If you go and piece together all the conversations that Jesus and Pilate had, you would hear Pilate ask one of the questions today, are you really a king? He wasn't mocking him. He was asking him, are you, really the, are you really the Messiah? He used that word. Are you really that guy? And Jesus said, that's what you're saying. He asked Jesus in a different gospel, do you really have a kingdom? Are you going to, ha- are you going to have a kingdom? Are you a king? Is there a kingdom? He would eventually in the book of John ask Jesus, like, what's truth? What is, help me understand what is really truth. I think you had a guy here who was asking the right questions is there a king i should worship is there a spiritual kingdom i can be a part of is there some truth that i should be aware of he he was an inquisitive person he was looking for something more and here's what you're going to find out everyone's looking for something more he was not only looking for something more he was asking the right questions and he was asking the right questions of the right guy but he was just too passive to take a step in faith because letter c he was overwhelmed by peer pressure He was overwhelmed by the peer pressure of his wife, who was like, whatever you do, don't let this come back on you. He was like, all right. So I believe he washed his hands specifically to tell his wife, I did what you asked me to do. I believe he crucified him so he could specifically tell the Jewish people, and I did what you wanted me to do. How many of you last week made some of your biggest decisions because you knew it was what other people wanted you to do? rather than what you knew God was leading you to do. How many of you God said go right and your wife said go left and you thought I'll I'll do what she wants me to do? How many of you God said go right and your boss or your company said go left and you thought I'll do what they want me to do? Think about some of our students as they started school, how easy it was to follow Jesus surrounded by positive peer pressure at camp, how hard it is to follow Jesus surrounded by negative peer pressure at your public school. Pilate was overwhelmed by peer pressure. And he also knew he could get in trouble. Pilate had a kind of a turbulent history with the Jews, he's already had three strikes. The emperor in Rome has already told him, if you mess things up one more time, I'm going to call you back. When Pilate initially took over this region of Judea in AD 26, it says he marched in with the huge Roman standards and the, the standards of Rome, um, the big flags waving that the armies carried in that the Jewish people would have seen as idolatry, because everyone who was there before Pilate knew that the Romans could be there, but like, if you use their standards, those were idolatry, and the Jewish people didn't like that. So there was a huge uproar, so they got rid of all the standards. And then he later would make a bunch of gold shields according to antiquities. And on the gold shields, he would put the image of the emperor kind of as a gift to the emperor. But the Jews were like, that also looks like an idol. We're not allowed to make idols. They'd go nuts. At that point, the emperor actually wrote a letter to Pilate that's preserved in history that says, like, stop making the Jews mad or I'm going to pull you home. Later, there was some kind of uprising where we know from history that... Pilate took some of his people and he disguised them as Jewish peasants and had them start a revolt and kind of kill other Jewish peasants. Jesus actually spoke about this when he talked about when Pilate mixed the blood of the Galileans because of some of the sacrifices. So like Pilate was on thin ice and Pilate knew when the Jews came and said like this guy's declaring himself to be Caesar. You are no friend of Caesar's if you let him live. Pilate thought I've already got three strikes. Somehow I'm not out yet. Guess we better kill him. Now, here's what I find one of the coolest things about Pontius Pilate. He is not just a character from the Bible. He is a person in history. In 1962, they were digging around Caesarea Maritima, which is kind of on the western coast, a beautiful... Uh, place in Israel today, the only golf course in the entire country of Israel, they have one, is in Caesarea. When they uncovered this stone, and on this stone that's now preserved in the Israeli museum in history called the Pilate Stone, on this stone they found the words written from 2,000 years ago to the divine Augustus from Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. See, up until about 50 years ago, they were unsure whether this guy really existed in history, and then they found him. It's interesting how God used guys who like to write their names in stone. (laughs) Like all over Israel, you find people in the Bible who like to write their names in stone, and they're still engraved and left, most of them not Israeli. But the whole world had to say, oh, this guy that the Bible said was there when he was there, doing what he was doing, was really there doing what he was doing. There's no historian in the world that wouldn't say Pontius Pilate is a very real person. But I would say this for pastors who lead churches. I don't know that there's a pastor in the world who would say the faith shape of Pilate is also not a real faith shape of Christianity. People who God has already said, do this. And they're trying to figure out, who can I get to do that for me? Pilate knew he shouldn't kill him. He's just trying to find somebody to make that decision for him. People who are inquisitive, they've got good questions and they're asking the right people, but they're not really listening to the answer. And maybe more than anything, people who continue to be overwhelmed by peer pressure. I know what God wants me to do, but what will they do if I do? Let me ask you a question. Where in your life right now is Jesus being very, very clear that you're being very, very slow to act? Where in your life, August of 2023, has Jesus all year long been saying, you need to do this. And you're trying to figure out passively, inquisitively, based on peer pressure, whether or not you want to say yes. Because where Jesus is clear, we must have faith. Because if Jesus and his truth are clear, the next steps are simple. Not easy, but it's simple. And the answer is yes, do what Jesus asks you to do. We had a fun moment at camp this year where you you can do things with teenagers in a camp scenario that you can't always do all the time. Where I got up at the beginning of the sermon, like there were no heads bowed, there were no eyes closed, there was no music playing, there hadn't been any sermon preached yet. I just got up at the beginning of the message and said this, uh, followers of Jesus, after they become followers of Jesus, are supposed to be baptized. So if you're a follower of Jesus who's not been baptized yet, I told the kids, just stand up right now. And boom, like 76 of them stood up. All their friends looking around, all them watching. Because in that environment, all they want is truth to be obedient to They didn't care what anyone thought, and I said, here's what you need to understand. As a preacher of the gospel, I don't see anywhere in the Bible where a preacher tells people to follow Jesus, but doesn't tell them to be baptized, so I can't leave this camp until I've told you you need to be baptized. I told our team, what do you think the adults would do if in the middle of my sermon, I just said, if you're a Christian, you've not been baptized, stand up right now, and they were all like, no, like, (laughs) don't do that. I'm still considering, like, in this moment, whether or not I'll do that. Should I do it, Sandy? All right, so, like, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus and you've not been publicly baptized, been baptized by immersion, just stand up right now. I just want to talk to you for just a second. Just stand up right now. There's a couple. Listen. Here's what I want to say to you three that are standing. Um, the first step of ever four, the first step five. The first step of ever being able to stand up in the world, six, and say, I love Jesus, is standing up in church, seven, um, eight, and saying, I love Jesus. So, like, October 1, we're going to baptize a bunch of people after church. I'd love to invite you to do that. You can be seated. You don't have to. I'm just telling you as a pastor, that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that, like, you'll never learn to tell the world you love Jesus until you learn to tell Christians you love Jesus. And if you're afraid, it's like, well, what will they think? We'll all be thrilled. We're we're you. You're us. We're all, like, in this together. It's a step of courage. It's a step of faith. Uh, We read this week, for those of you in our Bible reading plan, Jeremiah went to uh, King Zedekiah, and King Zedekiah said, what's God's word to me? And Jeremiah said, it's this. And Zedekiah said, if I do that, how will the people react? And Jeremiah said, don't worry. If you don't do it, let me tell you how God will react. Here's what I wrote in my journal that day. Um. There's an old hymn called Trust and Obey that's backwards. It should say obey and then trust. I obey my next step and I trust for the ones after that. That's how Christianity works. Pilate couldn't do that. Pilate couldn't obey and trust and because he couldn't trust, he wouldn't obey. So we see this really interesting faith shape. But here's the big picture of Pilate's contemplation. I don't know if you read it, but it was powerful. Pilate asked the most important question ever asked in Matthew 27, 22. Did you see it in your Bible? It's a really good question. It is the question that the whole world will one, have to, one day have to answer about Jesus. Here it is. What shall I do with Jesus who's called the Messiah? It is the most important question you will ever ask or ever answer in your life. What should I do with Jesus? You need to know there's only two answers. You can receive him or you can reject him. That's it. Pilate said, what shall I do with the Messiah? What shall I do with Jesus who's called the Messiah? You can receive him or you can reject him. For those of you, most of you who have received him, trust him, follow him, love him, look to him every day. He's not just the one who takes care of our past and future. He's the one who takes care of every day, amen? So like we learn a lot from Pilate's faith shape. And then scene three, as we kind of move through this, we we see a guy named Barabbas, and we see his life instead of his death. We see Barabbas' life, only one verse. In verse 26, it says, then Pilate released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged, and then he handed him over to be crucified. Who was Barabbas? Here's what we learn from the Bible. Barabbas was a Jewish freedom fighter who had committed murder in an insurrection attempt against Rome. It's interesting, Matthew is the only one, and some of you have never heard him called Jesus Barabbas before. Matthew's the only one who uses that terminology. It probably from Pilate was a play on words. The word Jesus was Yeshua. It meant Savior. Pilate was literally saying, do you want a Savior named Barabbas who killed one trying to overthrow Rome? And then he used Old Testament terminology. Or do you want a Savior who says he's the Messiah? Do you want a Savior named Barabbas who tried to overthrow Rome? Or do you want a savior named Jesus? Can I ask you a question? Um, what are the names of your other saviors? Like, yeah, save savior named Jesus. Remember, we thought about trust, hope, affection, security, priority, worth. Yeah, save savior named Jesus. What are your other saviors named? Money? Power? Influence? Friendships? Family? Health, Yes, save your name Jesus, and then you have these other saviors in your life. You also place all the security of your heart in them. What are their names? One was named Barabbas. It's interesting, Pilate's plan, his last passive plan, was there's no way the people will ask for Barabbas. It said he literally gave him a choice because he knew the chief priests were jealous of Jesus, and he thought, if I give them an insurrectionist and the Messiah, they're going to choose the Messiah. It was his last-ditch effort not to have to kill Jesus. And the chief priest stirred up the crowd like, ask for Barabbas. So they asked for Barabbas. And Barabbas goes, free. What's interesting, when we look at his life, I don't know that there's anyone in Scripture that looks more like us than Barabbas. Because when we look at the big picture of his life, letter A, every one of us fought the battles of Barabbas until we met Jesus. What's that mean? We fought for our freedom. We fought for our meaning. We fought for our identity. We fought for our security. We thought our life was in our hands to take care of. We were the man in Proverbs 14:12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. We are freedom fighters. We fight for friends that will give us security and identity. We fight for a status that will give us security and identity. We fight for money that will give us security and identity. We fight for power that will give us security and identity. We fight for intelligence that will give us security and identity. We fight for a career that will give us security and identity. These are all the areas mentioned by Solomon in Ecclesiastes when he said, I tried to figure out if my Savior was going to be the Messiah or if my Savior was going to be myself. So here's all the areas That I dug into to figure out if they could be my savior. And he got to the end of his book and he said, every savior I tried, but the Messiah ultimately fails me. So I need a savior named Jesus. We have, for many Christians in the room, we have a savior named Jesus. Some of you also have some other saviors you put way too much security and identity in. We're freedom fighters. And every day we fight for what's ours. When Jesus says, surrender, just surrender to me, we also let her be, every one of us, like Barabbas. We had Jesus die on our cross. It's interesting that the morning Jesus was crucified, they already had three crosses made because they had three people who were supposed to die. And there's probably very little doubt that Jesus died on a cross that had Barabbas' name on it. Here's what you and I need to understand. Because we were born sinful and spent our life running from God rather than running to God, we have a cross with our name on it. But when we come to faith in Jesus, Jesus lets us like Barabbas walk away. He lays down on our cross. He dies our death. He pays for our sin and we go free. Naturally, if left to ourselves, we are far more like Judas and Pilate and Barabbas than Jesus. But because of Jesus. Turn to somebody and say, because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, we've been changed. And when we find in us a little bit of Judas and a little bit of Pilate and a lot of Barabbas, when we find them in us, we choose faith in Jesus. As you've listened today, scene one, Judas, scene two, Pilate, scene three, Barabbas. What has God said to your heart about your walk with Jesus? What do you need to do to respond? Our prayer questions will kind of roll on the screen to just give you a moment to read and reflect and pray. And then I'll come back and close this in prayer. But my prayer for you is that your heart would be open to see if there's any Judas left and to choose faith. To see if there's any Pilate left and to choose faith. To see if there's any Barabbas left and to choose faith. God, as we search our hearts, show us Judas, show us Pilate, show us Barabbas, show us Jesus. He's better. And let us choose faith in Jesus' name. Amen.